Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the third and final in the uh, family tree of Jesus. And this has been a fun journey. I'm privileged that you keep coming back again, and, and I'm thankful for that, those of you who are joining us online. As we started this kind of journey, we started with this kind of statement or thought that the family tree of Jesus doesn't just tell us how Christ came, but it really tells us why he came. So we could trace the lineage and we can learn all about these people and that tells us the family in which Jesus came. But it, it also tells us a bit of why he came because there's a real bunch of characters and we could actually take weeks just on this series alone and maybe it'd be fun to do that in some future year but we'd have to start well before Advent because when you start looking at the family tree of Jesus, you... Um, you come into contact with some real characters. And this week, we're gonna talk about one of the real characters. Last week, I told you that we were, we were going to look at the worst king in the history of Israel. So before I get into that, um, I, who do you think, and do not answer this, don't say this out loud, because you might offend the people around you, just think this thought, okay? I know some of you who are inclined to speak out loud, and people around you might stir a little bit uncomfortably, but who do you think is the worst leader of all time? Remember, keep it to yourself. Good journaling question, all right? If you're home alone, online, you can say it out loud. But truly to be a terrible, despicable leader, you have to have a few things kind of behind you. You have to be able to control not just the government, but really you need to control the economy. You need to control uh, the entertainment. Ideally, you control the religion. You have to have control over many of these facets and to be a truly remarkably terrible, awful leader who influences for evil, you have to have longevity. Because throughout the history of the world, we've had some really awful leaders and they come and they go and then there's a rebound and the nation isn't dragged down forever and ever. But a truly heinous leader destroys a nation because, well, they rule for a really long time. And the guy that we're gonna look at tonight is epically one of those kind of leaders. He was the longest reigning monarch in the history of Israel, Judah, both the combined monarchy as well as the separated nation. When Israel went to the north and Judah went to the south. This is a king actually over the land of Judah. Over the land of Israel, they never had a good king. Over Judah, every now and again, they had a good king, then a bad king, then a good king. This is one of the bad kings. And he reigned for a very long time. For literally generations he Reign. So his influence was extreme. So let's take a look. We meet him in 2 Chronicles 33. And incidentally, you can find his story in the tail end of 2 Kings as well. He was a bummer of a leader. It starts this way. Manasseh, that's who we're talking about tonight, was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. That's a long time. That's at least two generations, maybe touching on a third. You have ample opportunity to wreck stuff with that kind of longevity. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles he bowed down to all the starry hosts and he worshiped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, my name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his children in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens and consulted mediums and spiritists, he did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. And so we meet Manasseh. He's a 12-year-old, newly minted monarch. We don't know if he was a co-regent with his dad for a carryover period of time, but he might have just taken the throne at age 12. Quite possible. Even in 
early rabbinic sources, they looked at a 12-year-old as having responsibility. And so today we extend adolescence. I was a 12-year-old deep into my 20s. And today it's not much different. Some of you are still 12, and I won't pick you out of the crowd to embarrass me or you. But in that day, a 12-year-old male was considered a, a young adult and could carry responsibility. There wasn't childhood. There wasn't adolescence period. There was just thrust from the safety of the family into responsibility. And so Manasseh at age 12 is making decisions about things. He is responsible for things. And he has a dad, Hezekiah, who's a good dad. Hezekiah is amongst the good kings of the nation of Judah. You could go back and read some of the stories about Hezekiah, faithful, faith-filled man. He had his downsides from time to time. He could be a little self-absorbed from time to time, but where it counted, he was faithful. He even chose a name for his son, Manasseh, which would happen to be one of the, the 12 big tribes. If you know your history of the people of Israel, you would know that there were 12 sons, but two of them kind of get absorbed into the whole crowd. One, the tribe of Levi, ends up in all of the other tribes. And then Joseph, he has two sons. And so there isn't a territory of Joseph. He has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which are big territories and powerful territories. And so maybe Hezekiah just said, what do we name the boy? Eh, let's go with Manasseh. Or maybe he thought Manasseh speaks of strength and power. And that's what I want for my son. Either way, he has a name that's a, a biblical name. Even now, when I meet a family and it's, their kids are Rachel and Benjamin and Samuel, I'm like, either you go to church or you don't have much creativity in your life. There's something, right? And so young Manasseh grows up in a faith-filled home, but from an early stage, he begins to veer off in the wrong direction. And as we might expect, someone who ruled that, uh, that long has remnants in what today we call the Holy Land, the nation of Israel and that surrounding territory. This is a seal of Manasseh. This is attributed to Manasseh. And research has been done on this seal that was found in an archaeological dig and based upon dating and the style. And even at the top, you might note there's kind of like a winged creature of sorts. There's some influences that are Egyptian in this, which would speak to the era in which it was carved. So historians, to even the most skeptic, they say, we think this was King Manasseh's. But it, it's, it's, a, it's a reign that lasts so long that it leaves an impression. Now, because this is Wednesday night, and normally Terry speaks here, and because Terry uses maps, I have chosen to use a map each night in honor of our friend Terry, who will be back in January for the next series. But this is a map that kind of tells us a little bit about the territory, and here's why this matters. This is actually a map about the Assyrian influence. The Assyrians were the big empire at the time. They had wiped Israel off the map. But the Assyrians made vassals of everybody. And the territory that you see in kind of the creamish color or orangish, light orangish color and the greenish color. Those are the territories that by the time of Manasseh, he lived within that territory. You can kind of see towards the bottom here, you see Jerusalem and Samaria and you see the body of water right there in the middle. This is the territory that Manasseh lived in, which means that Manasseh was within the boundary lines of the Assyrians. And the Assyrians even reference Manasseh. So he's one of those kings, one of those characters that we are introduced to in the Bible that shows up in historical documentation. In other words, from time to time, when people are like, well, I think the Bible's made up, it's like, well, you can fantasize about that. But actually, historically speaking, much of history speaks to the reality and relevance of it. In fact, there are two what's called prisms. Sometimes they look like cylinders, but these would have been important methods of documenting. And what they would do is they would take wet clay and they would sort of roll the prism in the wet clay. But this was early printing press here. 
and my Acadian is not very good, but I'll attempt to translate using my iPad and also the translation I copied off of the document that had these pictures. See, um, on, the, on the one to our left here, the lighter colored one, this is uh, Esarhaddon's prism. And Esarhaddon would have been a emperor or a monarch or a king over the Assyrian Empire. He was the big time leader. And this would be a prism that had belonged to him, or at least spoke of his reign and his authority. And on this prism, if we all read Akkadian, what we would read is, I called up the kings of the country of Hattai and of the region on the other side of the Euphrates River, Belu, king of Tyre, and Manasseh, king of Judah. So Manasseh gets a call out. That's pretty special. Together, 22 kings of Hattai, the seashore, the islands, all of these I sent out and made them transport under terrible difficulties to Nineveh, the town where I exercise my rulership as building materials for my palace, big logs, long beams, and thin boards from cedar and pine trees, products of the Sarara and the Lebanon mountains. And so in that prism, it speaks of Manasseh. And the, the other one that's a little more of the terracotta colored, this is Asher Banipal's prism. Asher Banipal is a well-attested emperor or king over the Assyrian Empire. So Manasseh reigns so long, he's under at least two, maybe three different emperors of the Assyrian Empire. And so this is what Asher Banipal says. In my first campaign, I marched against Egypt and Ethiopia. Because um, if we were to go back and, and look at the map again, we would see that the great power is Assyria, but the great power of Assyria is buttoned up against Egypt. And Egypt's a powerful nation as well. Not as powerful as the Assyrians, but the Assyrians and the Egyptians were at a constant tension for centuries and it just so happened Judah was right on the border of these two territories. So by the way, when you're reading in Kings and Chronicles, and sometimes you read about the Egyptians and the Assyrians, and then later the Babylonians, this makes geographic and historical sense. Because while there's tensions between superpowers, the Egyptians are the fading superpower while the Assyrians are the growing superpower, and then eventually they give way and succumb to the Babylonians. But all this territory, the highway, runs through Judah, which would be great if you own the toll road, but it's terrible if you live there because you never know who's in a bad mood. Well, this is um, Asher Banipal was in a bad mood. He says, in my first campaign, I marched against Egypt and Ethiopia. Terkaha, the king of Egypt, and Nubia from Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, my own father, see he's attributing where he came from, had defeated and in whose country he, Esarhaddon, had ruled. So he, he's saying, hey, my dad beat the Egyptians, but guess what? Now that I'm on the throne, the uh, Pharaoh forgot the might of Asher, Ishtar, and the other great gods, my lords, and put his trust upon his own power. That was very foolish of him. Then, I, I added that, by the way. That was just editorial comment. Then I call upon my mighty armed forces, which Asher and Ishtar have entrusted to me, and took the shortest road to Egypt and Nubia. During my march to Egypt, 22 kings from the seashore, the islands and the mainland, Baal of Tyre and Manasseh, king of Judah, servants who belonged to me, brought heavy gifts to me and kissed my feet. That's actually in there. He said, he kissed my feet. Now, we're not sure if he actually kissed his feet. Mida, if that guy asks you to kiss his feet, you probably best kiss his feet. But it could be just a way of saying they were completely humbled before me. And so because of the, the prisms, uh, we can fairly accurately date the reign of Manasseh. This is one of the kind of neat things. Every now and then you'll see people go, what are the dates that this took place? Now, I'll warn you now, B.C. and A.D. are very confusing because B.C. works backwards from zero, from the birth of Christ. 
And I'm also mildly dyslexic, so that's a little secret. Don't tell anybody. They don't let me run budgets around here because I invert numbers constantly. So if you hear, I only share this to arouse both sympathy, but also to share with those of you, when you hear dates, you're like, that means nothing to me. So here's the date. From about 697 to 643 BC, that is when Manasseh is on the throne. And this this also, archaeology tells us, were boom years economically. That Manasseh may have been a bad king when it came to religion and when it came to his social influences, but when it came to his economic decisions, it seemed to be really good for the people. Because when archaeologists dig around in that area, they're like booming trade in oil and agribusiness and other products. It seemed to be a good time to live in the land. Yeah, there were tensions militarily, and you never knew if your village would be burned down and you'd be carted off. But if that didn't happen, it was good days. So that's a, that's a pretty big asterisk, right? Okay. So with that being said, the, um, the, the power and the strength of the Assyrians was something not to mess with. And every now and then, there would be a little bit of messing with the power. A couple uh, year ago, Karen and I were up in, uh, in a museum in Chicago. This comes out of the palace of the pre one of the predecessors of Ashurbanipal. This is from Sargon's temple. This is from his, uh, in fact, I put it on there that this is from the courtyard of his palace at Dur Sharkum, or however you want to say that word. I don't know how to say the word. Do your best. Do you know where that town is? It's about 10, 12 miles north of Mosul. I'm sure someone in this room's been to Mosul, not because you were a tourist at the time. Mosul also is known in the Bible by a different name. You know what it is? Some, some, sometimes during the last a uh, set of circumstances in Iraq, we, we knew the name of it, but Mosul goes by an ancient name called Nineveh. And so Nineveh is the capital in which Asher Bunapal lives, but his ancestor had a palace just north, and, and this thing was still very much in mint condition in that part of the world. About 120 years ago, the what was then called the Oriental Institute, but now goes by a new name, archaeologists from the University of Chicago liberated it to share it with Chicagoans everywhere. So you can go, and there's a massive section. This thing's 40 tons. You don't get the scale of it, because I, I, I should have taken a picture with one of my kids next to it. It's 12, 14 foot tall. This was just one of two of those things that flanked the entry in to the great palace. Now, you might ask, well, why are we looking at an artifact from 100 years prior to the incidents we're talking about? It just speaks to the strength of the Assyrian Empire. You might have been out on the frontier thinking you could get away with stuff, but people who had that in their living room, you didn't get away with anything from them. They had other reliefs that showed the torturous ways in which people received punishment from the Assyrians if you stepped out of line. So that's the background context. Well, let's go back to Manasseh and talk about what a lovely character he was. I mean, just, let's just kind of bullet point some of the things. This is the passage of scripture we just looked at, that he was 12 when he becomes king, and he's a pretty awful guy. It just says, in summary, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And this is something that is said in the scriptures from time to time. It say, he did good, and sometimes it said he did evil. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He revived the religious practices of the nations or the tribes that occupied that land before the people of God came into the land led by Joshua. And in fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, there's a whole list of things like, when you get in the land, don't do this stuff. And it was as if he did a Bible study and did everything he was not supposed to do. Because that's really what seemed to guide Manasseh. Everything that his dad was all about, everything in the scripture, he just went the opposite direction. And we all know people like that, right? I mean, in my life, the people that I've met that hate God and hate the church the most are people who grew up in it. My friends are the people I know that 
didn't grow up in the environment, they don't necessarily have an opinion at all. They might be a little confused. They might, they might condescend a little bit. I, I ministered for a number of years in, uh, in suburban Sacramento, California. And in our neighborhood, we had many people who came to work for Intel and they lived in our neighborhood and they were either originally from China or they were from India. And one of my neighbors just next door, he was from China. And he asked me what I did for a living and I told him I was a pastor. And he just looked at me and he said, I've, uh, I've been to church once in my life for a wedding. And I said, well, you're welcome to come to mine. You could see my church from, the, from our front lawn almost. And we were having this conversation in his driveway. And then he looked at me and he said, so you're a pastor. So do you, you work just the one day then? <laughs> and I did what you did. I laughed. I laughed. And he looked at me like, he literally said, why, why are you laughing? I said, no, that's an American joke. You, you have to understand. We're accused of working only one day a week. And the truth is we work a day and a half, not just one day. There's a full half a day attached to it too. No, no, but, but, um, but Manasseh grew up in it and maybe that's why he went the other way with it. He grows up in faith-filled home and he goes the opposite direction. So he, he builds, it says he builds places, the high places. He builds shrines in the high places. And this was a custom of the people. The Lord said, don't do this. Worship only at the tabernacle. Because what people would do, and they still do it, and they've done it for years, and they've done it in many different continents around the world where there's a high place. People go, I'm closer to the deity here. And so they build shrines to the deity. And so this was a true thing that was happening in the land before the people actually came into what's thought of as the promised land. There's even a psalm that speaks of this very phenomenon. This is the psalm. It's, this is Psalm 121, verses one and two. And you might've heard this psalm before. The psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Because what people would do is they would look up to the shrine on that hill or that hill. And so what the psalmist is saying is, do I look up there to see where my help comes from? And he says, no, no, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I don't go to the shrine up there. My God is the God over everything. That's who I turn to. I don't turn to the shrine. But Manasseh said, no, 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 turn to the shrine. Don't worry about the Lord of all those other things. Go worship at your local shrine. And that would sort of decentralize things. That would return some power to the people. It would, it would say, just do what seems right to you. Manasseh wasn't gonna get in the way. And so he sets up Baal and Asherah poles, which were all fertility gods. They were poles that would stick out of the ground and, and they were what are called phallic symbols, which is very crass to think about in our culture today of something like that being worshiped or bowed down to, but this is what they would do. It was all part of their worship practices. It was awful. And Manasseh restores it after his dad had gotten rid of it. He brings it back into vogue again for decades. And we have to wonder why. Why would he do it? The scriptures don't give us a why. They just say it was evil. But we're curious people and we always want to know. I mean, why does anybody take a path like that? Just think about the people we know, or maybe even in our own story, not looking at other people. Sometimes it's just keeping up with the neighbors. It's what everybody's doing. Why wouldn't I do it that way? Everybody is doing it that way. They're prioritizing that. They have found something over there. And for Manasseh, he's trying to do what? He's trying to secure his power. He's trying to grow his economy. He's trying to please the people. And so... When it comes to these matters, what motivates him? What I want us to do is just be very, very careful when we encounter evil, either in this world or in the Bible. I want us to be very careful not to turn these people into some sort of demonic keystone cops that are just so silly and vile that they're far, far out there. I want us to examine a little more. Why would somebody do something like that? Scriptures don't give us a window into his mind. They just describe what he did. But we should always consider, if nothing else, for self-reflective purposes, for our 
own consistency. We should be awfully cautious. Well, it says in verse six that he sacrificed his children in the fire of the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Have you ever heard of that valley before? The valley of Ben-Hinnom? I know you have. It just, you've heard it by a different name. But the first time we bump into this valley is in the book of Joshua when Joshua's establishing the boundary markers. It occurs twice in Joshua. Both are boundary markers. The first time is the boundary marker of Judah and the other one is the boundary marker of Benjamin. We'll just look at one of them in Joshua. Then the boundary goes up by the valley of the son of Hinnom. See, Ben-Hinnom just means son of. Even now when you see someone that's on the news and Ben is before their last name, it means son of. And so in the ancient custom of things, it would be son of. That would be the person's last name. It would be Bob, son of Tom. That's how they would give their designation of who they were. And so the boundary goes up by the valley of the son of Hinnom at the southern shoulder of the Jebusite, that is Jerusalem. See, it's just right next. It's just outside Jerusalem. But it's right up against some of the elevated area of Jerusalem. And the boundary goes up to the top of the mountain that lies against the valley of Hinnom on the west at the northern end of the valley of Rephaim. We, we see it twice in Joshua and we actually meet this same valley in the story of Manasseh's grandpa. Manasseh's grandpa Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And get, this is the, one of the worst of the worst. And he burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and he made offerings on the high places and the hills and under every green tree. Child sacrifice is not unique to that part of the world. It's actually our part of the world. Central and South America, the Aztecs, the Incans, the Mayans did it. The North Africa, the Carthaginians did it. They even found a, a type of cemetery with these little urns in it. And at first, they recognized what it was, and then later archaeologists didn't want to look that evil in the face, and they said, eh, it's probably more like a, a cemetery just for kids, and then modern historians and archaeologists say, no, we have to own what it is. It's an awful thing. And so that was a thing at the time, and it was always or typically done in major times of desperation when enemies were at the gate or where the crops were about to fail or there was something that triggered in the people that if we offered up our future, if we somehow would do this thing, then the gods would be appeased and they would be pleased and they would provide for us. And so they're the very small ones, the most vulnerable of their community, they would offer up as just a burnt offering before the gods. Molech is the one that oftentimes was worshiped in that part of the world. And so Ahaz did this. It's possible that Hezekiah wouldn't have been king. Maybe his older sibling was one of them that was burned up in the fire. Some have suggested that maybe it was just the the kids of the mistresses and the concubines of the royalty that would offer it up. Or maybe it was just that lippy kid that they just got tired of, that they would, no, that's inappropriate. And if any of you smirked at that, I'm gonna talk to you later. No, it, this is no laughing matter. It's terrible. We almost have to sort of find some levity in it, but there is no levity in it. It's awful. That was what the people had done in that land before the Hebrews came into the land. That's why God said, go into those towns and wipe them out. You don't, don't keep any. You're gonna learn their gross practices and you can't let them live. That's why the ferociousness of wiping some of those villages out, which are difficult for us to listen to or read in the text now, that was why that was so important. And here we have a king of Judah bringing this into the people. And so 
Here we go into Manasseh, and he does it. Now, I told you before, this particular valley, you have heard the name of this valley before. It just, in the New Testament, goes by a different name. And in our English translations, we just translate the valley as hell. This is Jesus. In the Gospels, he mentions this valley, which in his times would have been called Gehenna. And Gehenna is the valley of this. So you can kind of see why, why would it have become by the time of Jesus a burning trash dump? Because after it had been used for such gross, awful purposes, there was only, there was only one thing you do with a place like that. You don't turn it into condos. You turn it into a burning landfill. And so it becomes a metaphor for hell. That's what Jesus uses as one of the primary expressions, Gehenna. But in your English translation, there it is. I will show you whom you should fear, Jesus says. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into Gehenna or hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Which if you can read that text without having a little chill go up your spine, you're I think reading it wrong. This is from the loving Lord Jesus Christ saying, be very aware of who God is. Fear the Lord and worship him. Well, this, uh, this valley, Ahaz practiced sacrifice. Well, it, it gets worse from there. Second Chronicles 33, it goes on. Manasseh says he took the image he had made or type of Asherah pole or some sort of idol and he put it in God's temple of which God had said to David and to his son Solomon, in this temple in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites leave the land I assigned to your ancestors if, and it's a big if, if only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them concerning all the laws, decrees, and regulations given through Moses. See, God always gives fair warning. He says, I'm giving this to you. Is there a string attached? You could put it that way, but that, that's kind of a, a silly way to put it. It's more like there's responsibilities attached. You, you have to do something with the opportunity I'm giving you. And if you neglect it or abuse it, then there are going to be consequences. So I've chosen this to be my place, and you'll get to live here as long as you abide by these things. Verse 9, but Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray, so they did more evil. This is one of the most damning editorial con, uh, comments in the Bible. And I'm using the D word as it was in the Bible. This is an awful, awful statement. They did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Which brings us to a question. Is God petty? Is he petty because he wants to be worshipped a particular way? I've heard people say this. I mean, if he's God, what's he care if people worship this way or that way or worship that thing or, or uh, spread their, their worship around? Why is he so like that? But that question is to misunderstand a great concept about God. And the great concept is this. God is not trying to take something from us. He wants something for us. One of the things I love to watch on, uh, on uh, social media, they have little like short videos and reels, and I love building stuff. It's a hobby of mine to build odds and ends. We've renovated houses in the past, and I do a little work building furniture. Don't get excited. It, it's uh, not on the market. It, it's good enough for my home and office, not good enough for resale. But I, but I love building stuff, and I love watching people build stuff. But one of the things I really love is watching contractors walk through renovation projects of people who've totally screwed things up. Do you like those fail videos? Like you watch them and you're like, you watch an accident and it's kind of, long as nobody got hurt, you're like, that was kind of fun to watch, right? Uh, yeah, my favorite, of course, are people who speed by someone and they accidentally speed by a police officer. My absolute favorite and they get caught. It's absolutely, I want to be there one day. I just don't want to be the victim. And, um, but... But I love watching these, uh, these kind of epic fail kind of things happen 
where people put a drywall screw through the plumbing or in a process of adding wiring or some piping or something, they notch out the joists and they, they notch out the, 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 the beams and the, thus uh, they kind of compromise the structural integrity of a home. And so they'll peel back the drywall and they'll be like, these people could have died in this house. And it's very fun because no one did die, but it also reminds you that really dumb people have power tools too, and they shouldn't, right? And don't wave your hand if you're sitting next to someone who is uh, like that, okay? That's, this is a safe place and we wanna keep it that way. But, but God, God has a way things ought to be structured to avoid compromising the structure of our lives. Just like a good proper building code keeps you safe in your home, a good moral code keeps you safe for life. And if you think about it, which of the 10 commandments would you vote out? I mean, personally, I don't like the thought of being killed. So I'm a big fan of thou shalt not kill, right? I mean, raise your hand if you're glad not to worry about being killed, right? That's, that's a pretty good command. It's a pretty good command if you're married to know that your spouse is faithful and when you leave the house or you're away from the person, they're not running around. And I bet they feel the same way too. That uh, the moral law code about adultery is a good one. It, in other words, what the command, you, do, you just think, on it, take the commandments, they're a gift from God. They create a more stable society, stable family life, stable friendships. If you know that your friends or the people around you aren't burning with envy over what you have, I mean, you want them to like admire what you have, right? But you don't want them to just look at you with some disgust at what you have, right? And you certainly don't want them to steal it from you. How wonderful it is that God made us in such a way to say, look, I have a gift for you. You abide by some of these ways and it will create something stable and rich and good in your life. It's a gift. And it's not just the Ten Commandments. It's even in the way that we understand God and we approach God because what we believe about God ultimately will shape our lives. So if we think that God is placated and happy with the destruction of other people, we're gonna destroy other people. If we think that God is going to be demanding of, of some sort of awful sacrifice, we will become the awful people that the false deity is that we reflect and worship. We become what we worship, in other words. Now, this is a very big deal. It's an important concept. God's not petty. We're petty. Or we're ignorant. But it's not God's issue. It's ours. And so, uh, what does God do? God speaks as he often does through the prophets and through his word because we read it. The Lord spoke to Manasseh. Could have been Isaiah because history tells us Manasseh had Isaiah killed. We don't know that for sure. It's not in the biblical text, but it kind of lines up with history. It may have been a prophet. He may have encountered the book of Deuteronomy one night and looked at it and thought, man, I'm not doing any of this. Maybe I should. Maybe it's his own conscience. It's the same way God speaks to all of us. He speaks through his word. He speaks through other people. He challenges us with our own conscience. So the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but what? They paid no attention. And so the Lord brought against them army commanders of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. And in his distress, that is a really remarkable part of the story, now, this is a part that Chronicles tells us that Kings doesn't. Now, don't, don't get worried about that just because Kings covers parts that Chronicles doesn't. Now, Kings is dealing with different matters. Chronicles fills in some gaps for us, much like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John look at the life and ministry and crucifixion and resurrection of Christ from different angles. Well, so it is here. It says they put him in bronze shackles. They took him to Babylon. 
In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty, and he listened to his plea, so he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Now, now the circumstances are unclear. We we don't know why the Assyrians showed up at the gate and said, "Uh, come visit Babylon, please. We don't know. Because he was an awful guy, but he didn't get carted away because he was an awful guy because the Assyrians were just as awful. They did the same blasted stuff. It wasn't that. No, no. It was something else. And historians kind of put it together and they think because there was a, a bit of an uprising between Asher Binapal and his brother, there was some tensions there and Asher eventually went in and made his brother pay. In fact, there's an interesting relief panel that's been dug up and, and it's been kept. But this is actually Asher Binapal, and this is uh, his victory. In fact, the, the panel came with some wording and in the panel it says, um, I, Asher Banapal, king of the universe. He gave himself a bit of promotion from Assyria. King of the land of Asher, who at the command of the great gods has attained the desires of his heart, which is really nice when the gods tell you, go ahead and do whatever you want. The garments and the ornaments, the royal insignia of Shamash Shumakun and the father and the faithless brother, his harem, his officials, his battle troops, his battle chariot, his processional chariot, his state vehicle, all the provisions. I don't know what the difference is between the state vehicle and the battle chariot, but apparently there was a difference. His state vehicle, all the provisions which were in his palace, the people, the male and female, great and small, they were made to pass before me. In other words, what this is, is Asher Banapal is on his chariot. He is the victor and everybody's been defeated. So it could be that maybe, just maybe, that Manasseh got himself a bit of a tizzy there where he sided with a rebel brother hoping to break free from some of the yoke or keep some of the taxes or bet on the future. Either way, it did not go well for him. If that is the case, then we know the dating of this would be about 648 BC, which is kind of interesting to to think that this was a mixture of rebel. But it says that Manasseh, while in that time of reflection, sought the Lord. And it said the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. You remember this? But when he prayed, verse 13, when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. Now, sometimes people will tell me, you know, I like God in the New Testament better because he's so much nicer. The Old Testament, he's vengeful and tough. 50 years of open rebellion to God and you finally, you finally have everything washed away and now you you have this moment and you reflect on your life and the poor decisions you've made and you apologize to God and what's it say? What's this tell us about God? The Lord was moved and listened And he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. And that last line is a very powerful line. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. There's this uh, engraving. I love love engravings. They they would carve them out of wood or other material and then they would um, cover them with ink and press them on paper. And so engravings have survived better than some paintings have. And this is an engraving an engraving from Martin DeVos around 1600. And this is not historical, you know, because he dressed him up like the people of the day, which isn't a terrible way to depict things from Bible times because rather than them being too far removed, they feel much more close at hand. But, but they didn't, Manasseh probably didn't dress like this and he probably wasn't in a prison like this. And yet it sort of became a fascinating focus of art. If you just Google Manasseh repent, Manasseh in prison, King Manasseh, you'll find a bunch of different paintings and pictures from different eras, even of the not too distant past, because people are really curious about a guy who did all the awful things that he did and yet came to God. 
And so in this engraving, it, it, it demonstrates how fascinated we often are between the, the dark and the evil, but how repentance brings this around. There is a, a attributed work called the Prayer of Manasseh. Now, nobody knows truly if Manasseh wrote this prayer. This is in a section of the Bible called the Apocrypha. And if you grew up Roman Catholic or in an Orthodox tradition, you were familiar with the Apocrypha. And it was considered part of the biblical standard, though it was rarely, if ever, read publicly. In fact, that is what Apocrypha historically comes from. It just basically means private reading. There was the parts of Scripture, Old and New Testament, that were written, read publicly in church. And then the parts that were read for private inspiration and encouragement. And the prayer of Manasseh is one of those prayers. It dates to about as far as we can tell, 280 BC. Some would say it's earlier than that, right to the time of Manasseh. We don't know. It, it shows up in the Greek Old Testament, the thing called the Septuagint. So without going into a real history lesson of the Apocrypha, let me just pull a few lines from the prayer of Manasseh, which also, if you have access to the internet, you can easily find the prayer of Manasseh. Here's just a handful of lines. For the sins I have committed. Just think about this. This may or may not be Manasseh. But it sure is trying to capture the tone of Manasseh. It's trying to, with honesty, accept responsibility. Here's what he says. For the sins I have committed are more in number than the sand of the sea. My transgressions are multiplied, O Lord. They are multiplied. I am unworthy to look up and see the height of heaven because the multitude of my iniquities. I am weighed down with many an iron fetter. So that I am rejected because of my sins, I have no relief, for I have provoked thy wrath and have done what is evil in thy sight, setting up abominations and multiplying offenses. And now, and now I bend the knee of my heart. Is, is that not just one of the most beautiful lines? It's poetic, it's rich. I bend the knee of my heart, beseeching thee for thy kindness. I have sinned, O Lord, I have sinned, and I know my transgressions. I earnestly beseech thee. Forgive me, O Lord, forgive me. Do not destroy me with your transgressions. Do not be angry with me forever or lay up evil for me. Do not condemn me to the depths of the earth, for thou, O Lord, art the God of those who repent. If you're familiar with the Psalms, it, it sounds a little bit like Psalm 51 which is the psalm that David wrote after Nathan the prophet came and confronted him for sleeping with Bathsheba and having Uriah killed and trying to cover the whole thing up. In Psalm 51, David says, against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. Now, if I was Uriah and able to speak from the grave, I'd be like, uh, what about me, man? But, but David understood that all sin while a violation against others is truly a violation vertically. And the prayer of Manasseh, as I said, I, maybe it was written by him, maybe it wasn't written by him. I'd encourage you to read it because if ever you're struggling with the right words in order to express sin and repentance, that will help you. That is why spiritually minded people have turned to that prayer. Now, I will be fully transparent with you. I was... I was not aware of the prayer of Manasseh until I studied this text. A couple weeks ago, it was the first time I bumped into it. Some of you are like, I've known it since I was a kid, man. Fair enough. And if you've never heard of it before tonight, don't feel like you're behind the curve. I got you beat by upwards to 14 days. But it's worth having a look at. Because like I said, I, I don't, I have no way of knowing if Manasseh wrote those words, but it certainly connects with what was happening in his life. And so it says, afterward, he rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David, west of Gihon, spring in the valley, so far as the entrance of the fish gate and encircling the hill of Ophel. He also made it much higher. He stationed military commanders in all the fortified cities in Judah. It appears that what's happening here is Manasseh goes home, a humbled, chastened man, and says to the emperor, I'll be a good boy, and I'm going to make the frontiers more protected. So if the Egyptians come up, which, by the way, they will do a few decades later, but I will have fortified cities 
and I will be able to protect your southern border. At least that's why we think he was doing that. He got rid of the, but this is the good part. He got rid of the foreign gods and he removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as all the altars he had built on the temple hill in Jerusalem. And he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and, and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it. And he told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. The king becomes the preacher. He becomes the prophet. He becomes the pastor. He becomes the truth teller. He leans into the people. He is now in his golden years. This is senior edition Manasseh here, but he's a new man. And this is kind of exciting when you think about it. it's never too late to come to the party. It doesn't matter how young or how old you are. You're never aged out of an opportunity to come to the Lord. And as far as anyone can tell, Manasseh is towards the twilight of his reign, towards the twilight of his life. Not many years left, but he's going to make the most of them. So he cleans house and he becomes the preacher. The people, sadly, however, continue to sacrifice on the high places, but only to Lord God. So they sort of, they kind of syncretize their faith. And the other events of Manasseh's reign, including his prayer to his God. See where the idea of a prayer of Manasseh came from? The prayer to his God and the words, the seers that spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, are written in the annals of the kings of Israel. Another book that we don't have, by the way. His prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty, as well as all his sins and unfaithfulness and the sites where he built high places and he set up Asherah poles and idols before he humbled himself. All these things are written in the records of the seers. Manasseh rested with his ancestors and he's buried in his palace, which is really interesting. One of the little consequences, sometimes sin has consequence. He doesn't get to be buried with the other kings. It's still a good burial. He gets planted in the rose garden. He gets planted in the courtyard of the palace. It's not as glorious as one of the kingly uh, graves, but it's, it's still something. And it says that Ammon, uh, his son, succeeds him. So that... But, we can't leave his story fully because he has a legacy. And the question is, what will Ammon be like? What kind of king will Ammon be? Will Ammon follow old Manasseh or will he follow new and spiritually revitalized Manasseh? Which one is it going to be? How many of you think he's going to follow old evil Manasseh? Let's do a little quick show of hands. Okay. All right. So you're going to have to raise your hand one way or another. How many think you're going to follow the old evil Manasseh? Okay. All right. How many of you feel like he's going to follow good Manasseh now that he's okay? And some of you didn't vote. I'm not going to point fingers, but I'm hurt. All right, so here we go. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem two years. He did evil. I mean, he made the most of his two years. He did evil. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done. Ammon worshiped and offered sacrifices to all the idols Manasseh had made. Manasseh threw him out of the city and apparently Ammon was like, hey, bring him back in. But unlike his father Manasseh, he didn't humble himself before the Lord. Ammon increased in guilt. It was a short reign, but it was ugly. Ammon's officials conspired against him and assassinated him in his palace. This is a pretty rough way to go. Then the people of the land killed all who had plotted against King Ammon. And they made Josiah, his son, king in his place. There's a great scholar reflecting on this in a commentary, the New American Commentary. He said, just as Manasseh couldn't go back and undo the damage he had done to his nation, even so he could not go back and change the son he had raised to be a pagan. Ammon followed in his father's footsteps, but not the steps that Manasseh would have liked him to follow. And that, that's, a, that's a story some of us know well. You live life selfishly, pursuing everything for self for many years, maybe even raise a family, have all kinds of influence. But then at some point, God got a hold of you. You're here. And it's where you are today that counts. But there's a grief because there's been some damage done in the past. And that damage... That damage has had some consequences. It doesn't mean that today's a bad day. It just means that there's some things that got twisted that can't get untwisted. And uh, 
That same scholar a little later in his commentary says it's easier to lead people to sin than to lead them back out of it. That's a true, true statement. So it was at the end of Manasseh's legacy. He's a bad guy who has a bright, shining moment at the end, who has a son that, well, goes off the rails. Not entirely. There's a kind of an addendum to the story. It's his grandson. This is Josiah. It says Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. He did, he did what was what? Right. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he followed the ways of his father, David, not turning aside to the right or the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. In his 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places. This is his 12th year. He's, he's 20. You know, he comes, he comes to the throne at eight and, uh, in the eighth year of his reign, so now he's 16, he begins to seek God, and by the time he's 20, he begins to lead a spiritual renewal, and it says he does all these incredible stuff. Now, you, you could read on the rest of Josiah's story. It's an incredible story, but what I want us to see here is, you know, Ammon dies. He becomes a king at 22. He dies at 24. His son becomes king at age eight. I'm not terrific at math, but that kind of calculates out to Ammon has Josiah when he's 16. But if you really carry it backwards a time, what it really means is that the tail end, the tail end of Manasseh's life from birth to age six, Josiah is somewhere around the palace. But the Manasseh he knows is not the Manasseh Ammon knew. Ammon was colored by a previous Manasseh, one who was later humbled and came to faith. Now, why do I, why do I bring this up? For some, for some, there, there has been a mess in, in the distant past, but in the nearness of today, there's still an opportunity to have influence. Now, we don't know if Manasseh spent time with Josiah, but I'm just speculating if Josiah was a little grandson like I was with my grandfathers, I wanted to be around them. I wanted to see him. I wanted to see what they were doing. I wanted to listen to them. And they had a profound influence on me. Both my grandfathers did. My mom's dad in particular, because I spent a lot more time with him, but I learned quite a bit from both of those men. And so I bring this up just as a word of encouragement, along with the caution that is Manasseh's life, but for some that are listening, that there have been bad decisions made and there's consequences that go with it and broken and fractured relationships, but it doesn't have to always be that way. There is opportunity in the mix. And so because uh, I just have a little more to cover, I, I, don't, I, don't want us to, I don't want us to lose track of the overarching story in this that while Manasseh's long reign meant the nation was in tatters, even with Josiah's reforms, that there was still a hope for the people. In stories like this, as Josiah's reign was coming into being and towards the end of Josiah's reign, there's prophets like Jeremiah and then later in the Babylonian captivity, Ezekiel. And they would begin to point to the nation and say, hey, there might be some outward spiritual change, but inside the people are not changing. God sees what you're doing in the dark. He sees who you're worshiping in the side rooms. He knows and it's not good. There's a fraud happening. And when this happens, when a nation begins to crumble or a people begin to suffer, there's always a game we play. Do you know what the game is? It's one of my favorite games. It's called the blame game, right? It is always fun to go, well, the reason the nation collapsed was because of that guy. Just like we can say the reason something, uh, a friendship collapses is because of this or a reason because of this. And we blame and we blame and we blame. There is a... Uh, a prophecy in uh, Ezekiel that's uh, kind of cryptic, but quite interesting because it points out that this blame game is nothing new. This is what Ezekiel says. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? And then he quotes the proverb. 
The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. You know what that means? It means um, kids sometimes go, it's my parents' fault. I'm experiencing something bitter and it's the parents' fault. And to be sure, sometimes parents influence these things. But, but what he's saying is apparently it was always a habit to play the blame game. And if we really want to do a blame game professionally, we always blame the parents. And sometimes it is the parents. But, but we have to be cautious because that is a, a gut-level response to a situation that we find ourselves in. But Ezekiel says, let me tell you, I've heard this uh, proverb before. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you'll no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For everyone belongs to me. The parent as well as the child, both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who'll die. In other words, what he's getting at. Ezekiel says, it's very common to point the fingers and go, the reason that I did this wrong is because of y'all. And what Ezekiel says is, the sovereign Lord looks at that and says, uh, no. By the time you're able to blame someone else, you bear responsibility. Because if you have the reflective power to say the decisions I'm making right here are the result of this over here, if you have enough brain power to figure that one out, then you have responsibility to fix the situation you're in. Or at least take responsibility for the situation. It doesn't mean you can't say, well, I am in this situation because of some of these pieces. Sure, but now what are you going to do with it? Because it's no good just to point at others. And Ezekiel says that is no good. All right. This series has been about the family tree of Jesus. And right now you're like, well, get back to that bit. Where does Manasseh fit in? I'm glad you asked. Matthew chapter one. It's also in Luke as well. He refers to this. Ahaz, the bad king, was the father of Hezekiah, a good king. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh who was bad for about 95% of his life. Manasseh was the father of Ammon, who was all bad. And Ammon was the father of Josiah, who was good. And this is all in the family tree of Jesus. So how do we take this? There, there's a parable that Jesus tells, and it's about laborers. Jesus tells this story. He says, uh, uh, an employer goes out to the city square and he, first thing in the morning, he says, hey, I want to hire you. And the laborers agree upon the wage. So I'm going to give you a denarii. And, and then they go to the field and they begin work. And then he goes out mid-morning. He does the same thing. And he says, I'll pay you. And he goes out mid-afternoon. He says, I'll pay you. And it's like the last hour of the day. The, uh, the employer goes back out again and he says, I'm gonna, I, I will hire you. And the employee works for one whole hour. And at the end of the thing, they all line up and the guy who'd worked for one hour gets a good sum of money. And the guy who worked for a few hours longer gets the same sum of money. And then the guy who'd been there all day long gets the same sum of money. And before you think Jesus is preaching socialism, it isn't about money says there's going to be some people at the very early stage of their life come to faith and they live faith-filled lives. And then there's going to be some people that come in the ninth hour. And guess what? They're all going to be welcome into the family of God for all eternity. That's what it's about. It's not about money. It's about something grander and greater than money. And the same Lord the same Lord who in the New Testament expresses such grace, in the Old Testament expressed the same amount of grace. Here we have Jeremiah. Return, faithless people, I will cure you of your backsliding. Here's Zechariah. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Here's Malachi. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and haven't kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. And Micah says, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of the inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Why does Manasseh stand out in the family tree of Jesus? He's just a great reminder. 
He's a great reminder that the reason Jesus came was for sinners, to save. That, that nobody's so far gone that as long as they draw breath, that they can't turn to him and find newness of life. Charles Spurgeon, great 19th century British Baptist preacher, he put it this way in a devotional classic that's structured around Advent. He says this, Jesus Christ has come to seek and to save that which was lost. If he does not save, he was born in vain for the object of his birth was the salvation of sinners. If he shall not be a savior, then his mission in coming to this earth has missed its end. For the design was that lost sinners might be saved. Isn't that good? What a reminder. So when you're scrolling through the genealogy of Jesus and when you come to a Manasseh, you go, thank you, Lord, that there's still hope. There's always hope. And so it might be you. It might be Manasseh, but close. And maybe God's getting your attention. Or maybe you, you know a Manasseh and you've given up a little bit. Maybe double down on your prayer life. Put it before the Lord. But that family tree of Jesus is such a great reminder that none of us come to this because we're royal and noble and amazing, perfect people. We come because he's a perfect God, a loving God. Well, thank you for your patience through all of the last few weeks. It's been a delight to be with you all. We are now off for the next three Wednesdays. So we will not meet next Wednesday and the following two, but we'll be back January 10th. Pastor Terry starts a brand new series on the prophets. So I can't wait for that series. He was telling me about it. It's going to be good. And in the meantime, make use of our Christmas.crossings.church website. Plan which Christmas Eve service you're coming to. This Friday in Sanctuary, we have a Christmas carols sing along. You will not want to miss it. So make sure you take a look at that. Let me pray for you and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to open up your word and to look at real people who lived in a real place in a real time that if, if we were back then, we might bump into Manasseh. Lord, thank you for the life, the testimony of repentance and the reminder. Lord, would you, um, would you work in the lives of, of the people we know that yet have come to you and stir in them. And then for each one of us, help us to be reflective and draw nearer to you. Because you promise if we draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. We're grateful for it. We pray it all in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. God bless.